Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today we're talking about World War Z, and my guest is Max Brooks, author of the 2006 novel upon which the 2013 Brad Pitt starring movie adaptation was loosely based. Hi, Max. Welcome to Below the Line. Skid, it is good to talk to you. I'm glad to have you on the show. A quick warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers for either the book or the movie. You're taking your chances. But before we get into that, Max, tell me a little about your background and leading up to the writing of the book. I mean, I've been a novelist uh, since I was 12. I've just been getting paid for it uh, recently. I've done other things. I went to film school and... um, I was a writer for a couple of seasons on Saturday Night Live, 2001, 2003. Um, and then in 2003, my first book came out, The Zombie Survival Guide, which I wrote in the 90s, actually. And I didn't think it was going to be published. I wrote it for me as an, as an exercise, and I stuck it in a drawer. And then it somehow got published. And that's a whole other story of sort of what it means to market yourself as yourself and not as the person that people want you to be. But it led to my next book, World War Z, which was then optioned by Brad Pitt, and then a few years later got turned into a movie. Max, talk to me more about that option process. I know there was a bidding war. Uh, It was between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. What was it like for you as the author to have that going on around the book? As an author, it brought a tremendous amount of attention to the book that it might not have gotten otherwise. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So it shot it up to the New York Times bestseller list before it even hit the shelves. And then it drew up my first book, Zombie Survival Guide, as well. And that led to a lot of other writing opportunities, and it led to a lot of people reading the book. And it opened doors for me that I never would have guessed because of the attention that was brought to it. I was asked to speak at the U.S. Naval War College, which then led to uh, strategic studies groups at the Pentagon, which then led to my fellowships at the Brent Scowcroft Center, at the Atlantic Council, and the Modern War Institute at West Point, all because of this attention that the book suddenly got. Very interesting. The military picked up on this book, the uh, attention that it got, because one of the themes of Zombie Survival Guide that I've taken away from it, and for folks who might not be familiar, is that zombies are not the biggest danger. It's really the collapse of infrastructure and societal issues that are a big part of the problem. Yes. My first book, Zombie Survival Guide, is a straight-up disaster survival manual with zombies as the catalyst for the disaster. But only a small section of the book is meant to talk about actual zombie combat. So much else is meant to talk about nutrition and dehydration and infection, proper waste disposal. Uh, You know, what do you do when you break an ankle and there's no one around to set it for you? All these things which I had learned growing up It was the culmination of my childhood, uh, growing up in L.A., earthquake kits, earthquake prep, then a year in Army ROTC in college, and basically learning about how most casualties in war don't come from enemy combat. They come from things like disease or dehydration. The Zombie Survival Guide was a tactical book. World War Z was a strategic book, whereas Zombie Survival Guide was how does an individual or a, a group of individuals survive the collapse of world order. How do countries survive? How do systems survive? And just like in the first book, the zombies were the catalyst. 
but everything else around it was real. And it took years of real research to figure out how modern armies operate, how intelligence networks operate. What does one do when the global supply chain has collapsed and you need to feed 50 million people? So that was my entree into the military because I knew what they do and I knew how to speak their language even as an outsider. I was still a student of the profession of arms. But I want to go back to when Brad Pitt got the rights to the book. That was 2007. The movie's not coming out until 2013. From what I've read, they go through a couple iterations of the script. But as I understand it, you're not involved. How did it work that they took it and had other people write it? That wasn't even an option. It's not like they asked they asked me to come in and write them a draft or anything like that. I mean, I had one meeting in the very beginning where I was asked sort of about the writers they were considering. And one of them was J. Michael Straczynski, who I've just been a lifelong fan of because of Babylon 5. Uh, and I got to meet him and I got to just turn into Chris Farley in SNL. He was, remember when that scene, you were really awesome. <laughs> I got to turn into that babbling fool. But really, my experience is the polar opposite of the guy you spoke to who wrote Big Fish. Because I listened to that, that episode, and that was great. He was talking about writing it and being involved and being on the set with Tim Burton and knowing when to leave Tim Burton alone. John August talked about writing Big Fish and working with us on that in Alabama. But your experience was the opposite, as you said. I was, I was a passive passenger. And then many years later, I saw the trailer for the movie. And that was obviously quite a shock because if the trailer was anything like the movie, it wasn't going to mean anything like the book I wrote. And I was very lucky because I had three awesome people to sort of slap some sense into me. One of them was my wife, of course. I mean, I, I always say when people ask me advice for writers, I say, you, you got to marry your best friend because you can't have a solitary artistic career with your head up your own ass. Uh, you got to have a best friend. You've got to have a confidant. You've got to have someone who can give you tough love and support and also be willing to tell you things you need to hear. So my wife said to me, you need to reach out to our friend, Frank Darabont. Frank, I had recently become friends with. Frank, for some of your listeners who don't know, took a small indie comic book called The Walking Dead and took it to AMC and turned it into the mega hit that it is. He did that. He wrote it, the cast, the crew, directing, producing. And as a reward for this, this once-in-a-century hit, he was fired. He was fired off his own show because uh, AMC thought, well, now we have what we want. Let's get him out of the way. So Frank knows what it's like to get screwed. And I wrote to him, oh, my God, Frank, this movie, they're ruining my book. And Frank wrote me back very honestly and said, they did not ruin your book. Did they take your book off the shelves and rewrite it? No, no, they didn't do that at all. He said, what are you complaining about? You have your side of the story. He said to me, Max, try being a screenwriter, which is what I have been my whole life. Try having a script completely eviscerated by a director, but still produced. So then the world thinks that's what you wrote. He said, Max, if anybody ever wants to know your side of the story, there's your book in its purest form. So what's your problem? And then he did one further. He passed along my email to another guy who wrote to him and said, listen, tell your friend Max, he's forgetting why he gave over the rights for his book. Because the reason he did it is the reason we all do this as novelists. We do it to bring attention to our book. We do it so people will read our book. 
And now so many people are. So who cares what the movie looks like? What matters is so many people have been introduced to this book that would have probably never even heard of it. All the best, Stephen King. <laughs> so these three people got me on the right track again. And so I went and I saw the movie and I was so relieved because it was absolutely nothing like my book. And that, I know that sounds very weird because you would think intuitively, emotionally, the farther the movie goes from the book, the more upset the original author would be. But for me, it was the reverse because I didn't have to watch my characters being eviscerated. I didn't have to watch my story be perverted. I didn't have to watch anything. I was spared Stephen King's experience watching The Shining, which is still The Shining, but it's just different enough. And by the way, Stephen King was fired off The Shining. Kubrick <laughs> had him write the first draft. And Stanley Kubrick said, who the hell are you? You can't write. I'm hiring someone else. So I was spared all of that. And instead, I got to watch a really fun zombie film, kind of like 28 Days Later on Crack. Uh, and it just happened to have the same title as a book I once wrote. And then at the party afterwards, the rap party, Brad Pitt came up to me and, and one of the coolest guys ever because Brad Pitt, you know, let, let's not forget the world was rooting for him to fail when he was having production problems. Everybody was saying it was going to be his water world. It was going to be his downfall, you know, suck on that pretty boy. Here you go. And it turned out to be this mega hit and he could have easily gloated and he could have totally uh, wagged that in my face and said, yeah, nerd boy. Who's the zombie master now? <laughs> and instead, he came up to me and he said, so did you cringe? And I said, look, Brad, if I was anybody but the book writer, I'd love it. And he said, fair enough. And the only thing I regret is not thanking him because of what Stephen King said. Because this goes back to what we said in the very beginning about, about all the doors that open because of the attention brought to the book because of the movie deal. And I could have at least been mature enough to thank him there. Uh, and I didn't. And so that's, that's really the only thing I feel bad about in the whole experience. You know, when you brought up Frank Darabont, I worked with him on The Majestic. Oh, yeah. But he was the writer and the director. And yeah. so as someone with some film background, as you said, and you studied this, even when you're writing, are you not seeing a cinematic vision as well? In other words, would you have written something different or have liked to have carried it forward. I, again, I can appreciate the attention to the book, but you're not just a novelist that has dabbled in the movies. You have this sort of idea of what a film could be. Well, this is interesting because this is the contrast between World War Z and the next horror book I wrote, which is Devolution. Now, World War Z is not a cinematic book. The inspiration for it was Studs Terkel's The Good War. So when I was writing it, I did not have movie scenes in my head. I had a book in my head. In the defense of what Brad Pitt and his folks did, uh, that's a hard nut to crack. It's very hard to take a, a book of interviews with survivors and try to turn it into a, a two-hour cinematic romp. You know, that, that's, that's a heavy lift. Whereas Devolution, which is a Bigfoot attack story, that started off as a movie idea. And I pitched it to Legendary Pictures, and Thomas Tull loved it, and they brought in a writer, and we, we, they were going to make a movie, and it didn't go anywhere. And also, the script was different than my original vision. So once again, my super wife said, go to Thomas Tull and ask for the novel rights back, which I did. And Thomas, coolest guy ever, said, sure. You know, let's just sign something so if we do make it into a movie again, Legendary will do it. I said, fair enough. 
So when I sat down to write Devolution, I already had a movie in my head. And, and the book itself is very cinematic. You can see the movie as you read the book. So now the, the new team that is developing it into a movie have a much easier time. And also, the person I am with Devolution is a very different person in a different place in my career with World War Z. Like we said, with World War Z, nobody asked for me to write a first draft of that script. But with Devolution, I could demand it. So I got a first draft in before the next team came in. Now, when they were filming World War Z, did you ever get to visit set? No, no, I had one day uh, at Edinburgh. And, and that was fun. I mean, it was sort of, it, I wasn't sure if the zombies were running or not. I thought, <laughs> you know, wait a minute. But it, but it was huge. I've grown up on movie sets, so that I think I was denied the kind of joyous wonder maybe a writer who didn't grow up in Hollywood might have had. I think, you know, that, that would have been a lot more fun. But walking onto movie sets... And seeing the chaos and and uh, is is how I grew up. You know, it wasn't as exciting as it could have been and as it should have been. So, Max, going back to that point I said earlier, where it's not just the zombies, and in some ways they're a metaphor for disaster in general. In writing about zombies, what would you have done, or how are those themes would you like to pick up on? I am a lifelong fan of George Romero, and I always give him credit. Anytime anyone says, I, I like your books or, or anything about zombies, you know, this wouldn't exist without George Romero. And what George did to the day he died was try to turn the camera on us and talk about real serious social issues through the lens of zombies. He's always done that. And, I, and it always upset me so much that so many people who followed him focused more on the blood and guts and maybe throw in some boobs. And I hate that. You're missing the point. I could take a scene from Dawn of the Dead, which was actually they cut out of, of the original, had to be in the director's cut, where they're watching society collapse on TV. And Flyboy says, we could stop this so easily if people would just organize, do what has to be done. Well, does that sound like the world we're living in right now? Does that sound like COVID? So anything I try to do, I'm trying to go to the next level. And, I, and I'm trying to get us to think about the world we live in. I, I don't want to just escape from the world. I want to at least try to study it. And so Max, what makes it difficult to carry those themes into a film, do you think? I think that there are certain constraints of making a movie, any movie. And you have to, you have to honor that. You've got a limited amount of time. You've got to grab the audience. You've got to take them on a very quick adventure because it's going to be over before you know it. Uh, you don't have a lot of time to go deep uh, you'll either bore the audience or you'll get off topic. Uh, in fact, I have seen, and I know this is blasphemy, what I'm about to say, uh, for an author, but I have actually seen better movie adaptations than the books they were based on because the movies were tighter, they got the message, and they told their story. One of them was Jaws. No disrespect to Peter Benchley, but I honestly think that Spielberg's movie was tighter and got closer to what you're trying to do with the shark. Likewise, Logan's Run, one of my favorite old movies. I love that movie, but then I read the book and the book is much more, it's sprawling and I'm not even sure if the logic adds up, whereas every thread in the movie weaves together to tell this amazing post-apocalyptic tale. So like I said, you have to honor the constraints of a movie. Now we're living in a time of streaming. So you can do TV shows, you can do anthology series. And another wonderful freedom that we have is the markets become international. 
back in the day, you had to make a movie and everybody had to be American and you had to tell it to an American audience. But now that you have a global market, you can tell a sprawling international story, multi-language, multi-country, where you could really see how big this planet is in the way that Studs Terkel wrote The Good War. It wasn't just Saving Private Ryan. And that was a story I was trying to tell with World War Z was we are all stuck on this planet. And if we don't solve the regional problems, they will become global problems. Any other advice for writers as far as focusing on the movie from the book perspective or how these industries overlap that people ought to think about? I think when you're, when you're sitting down to write a book, you have to sit down and write a book, not a pre-movie. That can't be the problem. You've got to tell the best story that you're going to tell with the medium that you're working with. Tell the best story you can tell in that book and don't assume that anything else will ever come of it. You know, I know we live in this world of IP. I don't create IP. I write books that tell stories and I tell them in the best medium I can tell them. If it's a comic book, then it's visual. And that is very different than writing a book. If I'm doing even the audiobook, it's very different than the printed word. So understand your medium and be loyal to it. Max, you mentioned a couple of things earlier, but again, for our audience, where can they find more of your work? You know, you can always look out for my old stuff, but one book I'm very proud of, the graphic novel of the Harlem Hellfighters, and it's the true story of a unit of African-American soldiers in World War I that were set up to fail by their own government, who didn't want them coming home as heroes, and tried to actively sabotage them. And despite all the obstacles thrown in their path, they came home as one of the most decorated units in the entire U.S. Army. So it's written by me. It's illustrated by the brilliant Kanan White. Uh, you can pretty much order it anywhere. Graphic novels are sold. Now, has somebody optioned that, Max? Is that out there somewhere that maybe we'll see a movie someday? We hope so. But once again, there are the constraints, not just of the movie, but of physical production, which you know. You know, war movies are very, this is a whole other uh, podcast we could do. <laughs> but a as you know, war movies are expensive. There's a lot of props and a lot of costumes. And then a period war piece means all those props and costumes have to be made from scratch. So we're talking about a, a hugely expensive movie. We're also talking about a big cast. And when I wrote it, I originally wrote it as a screenplay. And I pitched it around Hollywood in the 90s. Nobody wanted it because the, the, the gold standard of American post-Cold War cinema was American pie, right? That was our victory. That's, that showed the American century was triumphant, was a dude <laughs> sodomizing a dessert. So nobody wanted it. And I was going to give up. And then LeVar Burton read the script and he said, you've come closest to the truth with this. As a kid who grew up with dyslexia and never really did well in school, to have Commander Jordy LaForge tell you you've done your homework. That kept me on track. So then when I got into comic books, I thought I can finally tell the visual story because this is a visual story. This is about race. This is about what people see. Uh, I don't want to just write an, a novel because the reader might forget these people and forget what color they are. These people were never allowed to forget it. So a comic book was great and it allowed me to do it. But my fantasy for this movie would be like A Bridge Too Far or The Longest Day, one of those great all-star casts. But how do, you, how do you do that? Because back in the day, the only reason you could have an all-star cast was because they all worked for the same studio. Trying to wrangle all this talent, I, I don't know how you would do that. 
Well, that one might be a bridge too far, but uh, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap here. But great, great talking with you. Awesome. Thank you. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info on our website, belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. I didn't have any creative control over the movie, but I did have creative control over how the book was marketed when the movie came out. And that was very important to me because when movies that are based on books come out, what publishers always do is they take the poster from the movie and they stick it right on the cover of the book, instant recognition in the airport, you sell a million copies, bam, easy money. The problem is the movie was so different that Brad Pitt's character, Jerry Lane, does not appear in the book. There is no Jerry Lane. They were going to put him on the cover of World War Z. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I, said, I said that. I said, There's no, I have nothing against Brad Pitt. I have nothing against the movie. But that is false advertising. And I will not allow you to do this because people who don't know the book, who might have seen the movie, will see the poster, pick up the book, open it, and say, where the hell is Jerry Lane? That was the one tiny bit of control I had. Yeah, you must have lost a lot of money over that little bit of control, Max. I can only imagine how Brad Pitt's face would have sold a bunch of books. Oh my God, I can only, I can only imagine. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs>